Welcome to Changing Reels, a podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time. My name is Courtney Small. I write for several publications, including ThatShelf.com, where the show is hosted, and Cinema Access, to name a few. I'm also the co-host of the podcast Frameline. Today I'm joined by cinephile and friend of the show, Bob Turnbull. Bob used to write frequently for about film on his site, Eternal Sunshine of the Logical Mind, and contributed to Row3.com. Now he's just enjoying life and enjoying films. If you might remember, Bob was on episode 56 of this show where we discussed Black Narcissus. Bob, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm just I'm recollecting our lovely chat about that amazing film. I'm, do, I'm doing well. How about you, sir? Uh, not too bad. This film that we're going to discuss today, I don't think is quite Black Narcissus level, but it's it's definitely something. It's not even on a level. It's in a, a different stratosphere. It's just in a different you know universe, really. That is right. Our main film for today is the 1977 cult horror comedy House, directed by Nobuhiko Obayashi. The film follows a teen by the name of Gorgeous and her six classmates as they plan to spend the summer at Gorgeous's auntie's country estate. Uh, little do they know that a dark secret lurks within the house. And I think that's as much as you can say for this film because it's it's quite something. And, I, and I'll say that this was a film that, Bob, I remember you telling me for several years that I needed to, to see. Oh, yeah, that's true. It took me, a, I'm ashamed to say, until November of 2019 when... Okay, so it's a recent watch for you. Very recent watch. It was on Turner Movie Classics, and they had it as part of their, I guess, one of those late-night cult films. So they showed this and Belladonna of Sadness. Oh, wow. So I take both of them, and I still haven't watched Belladonna yet. That, that also is quite the experience, sir. That's, that's a gorgeous movie, though, in, in many, many ways. <laughs> okay, so I look forward to, to seeing that. But I, I watched House, and my first instinct was, what did I just watch? That's the proper instinct, yeah, yeah. And I really need to talk to someone about it, and I want to talk to Bob about it. So I put it on the, the list of show topics, and the weirdness is still fresh in my, in my head. But would you, do you want to start off on why you thought this was a, a film I needed to see? First of all, I want to say I, I love the idea of TCM showing this movie. I mean, I, I love TCM, and I, and I don't want to pigeonhole all their viewers, of course, as you know, elderly people watching at home. Of course, they aren't. It's people that love classic movies. But I love the idea of somebody who maybe expects more of a classic Hollywood-style movie coming to this just really being thrown <laughs> for a loop from second one all the way, I think, to the, the final shot. I, I guess that's one of the reasons why I've recommended this so many people mostly because i think it's so much fun it is unexpected at every turn it's a filmmaker who just really loves playing with the form i know you know as critics or reviewers or people that love film we love to tie the form with the story right it shouldn't be form over content you know the, the two should marry those are the best films but this is a case where you more than adequately explain the plot because the plot almost doesn't matter. And, you know, I hate to say that, but but this is a movie that just relishes in having fun with trying to tell the story in amusing different ways. Even the Criterion essay on this actually, I think, says, who cares about the plot? So <laughs> even I think when serious film scholars will look at this movie and say, yeah, yeah, there, there's a story there and that's fine. It's a kind of traditional ghost story in many ways. And there's lots of Japanese films to reflect on that that have done that before and since. It, it's a film 
by an experimental filmmaker who, if we look at some of the backstory here, it, a lot of it came from his his own daughter. His 10-year-old daughter was having dreams and nightmares, and he, and he based a lot of the, the script and story on that. And it really kind of feels like a horror film that a 10-year-old girl might make. Because there's sometimes random decisions. There's, you know, characters that are smiling even as sometimes they're they're dying. And it's, it's, its tone changes all over the place. It feels like a children's show sometimes. And then it's kind of eerie. It's a horror movie that I don't think a lot of people will be scared by, but it definitely leaves a feeling. So I'm rambling a bit here, but that kind of fits with the tone of the movie, I think. And I think I'm trying to touch on some of the reasons why I, when I first saw it, I was excited for other people to see it. Because it was shown to me by, by our mutual friend, Chris McGee, who uh, used to run J-Film Pow Wow. And I used to write there for a little bit, too, on Japanese movies. And, and he showed a bunch of us at his uh, house this film. And I'd heard about it. Again, I wasn't ready for what it was. And I just enjoyed it so, so much. Going in, I don't say going in blind, but just going in not knowing what to expect. And at every turn being kind of thrown for a bit of a loop, not plot-wise, just for how it was telling its story. Yeah, and that's interesting, because I didn't know that it was inspired partly by Obayashi's 10-year-old daughter, because and it does make a lot more sense thinking back to it, because there's a blissful ignorance that occurs in this film for all of the all of Gorgeous's classmates, and, and Gorgeous as well. But when they get to the house in particular, a lot of strange things happen, and they kind of brush it off. Or they'll experience something very traumatic, but then when their classmate tells them of something traumatic they experienced, they quickly dismiss it as it being nothing. So I always found that kind of interesting about this film, how up until I'd say the final afterwards, I think they're down to four of them in the house, and things get so crazy that they can't ignore, there's a, a certain innocence to a lot of their interactions, especially, you know, as people are disappearing left and right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even just the uh, the character names, you know, that's something that people jump on quite early on with this movie. There was a gorgeous fantasy, melody, kung fu, prof, sweet, and mac. And they all, all those names kind of relate to their, their character traits, or at least the, the main ones. You know, prof has glasses. Melody is a musician. Kung Fu is the, the athletic sports one who will fight anything and anyone. You know, it's it's really silly, but it fits that sort of child mentality, that sort of children's show kind of thing. And even just the, uh, the sound of this movie is at times it just feels like this generic kind of music, like a generic sappy melody, a generic action theme for whenever Kung Fu does your flying kicks. But I think it's written specifically for the movie and it really, really works <laughs> for some odd reason. You know, at, at first you're thinking, okay, he found some free music off one of those, uh, you know, one of those sites and just kind of put it in. But as it keeps playing throughout the movie, it, it just really seems to fit. The way that they managed to construct a piece of music that felt kind of like this generic kids show theme, but actually didn't get on your nerves by the end of the movie, or at least it didn't for me. It seemed to fit really, really well. Yeah, I love the I love the music, and it's funny because Kung Fu was my favorite character. Oh, uh, I I felt like she had the the most depth out of all of them, considering that all she really does is just leap into action. But whenever she leaps leapt into action, there was her music kicks in, and it reminded me of like the old uh, Lupin the Third cartoons. Whenever there was like an action sequence, and it was interesting because there's a scene early on in the film where it's just before they hop on the train to get the house, and there's like this kind of 
70s almost Josie and the Pussycat style pop music and I wasn't sure at one point if like the the singer or the group was actually in the film because as they're hopping on the train there's this group of guys that are singing the song as they're waving for the people to go by and it was just it, it's such an odd moment but it's so cheerful and it fit the amusing tone of that whole sequence because there's some I guess slapstick comedy that occurs with with one of their teachers and I don't know the I thought the music cues worked very well for for this film it's it's strange but yet fitting absolutely and uh, I believe those guys at the train station are actually a Japanese pop group and that's and they sing I think one of the songs maybe near the end um I, I was reading one of the articles so they actually make this little cameo in the movie that whole sequence is great too because it's got those sort of matte painting backgrounds and then you think they're out by the mountains and the camp pans left and they're actually a train station and they're on the bus and it's feels like it's kind of flying and then when they pull up to the bus stop you see again this beautiful sort of painting behind them and you think maybe that's the mountainscape and then it pulls away and you have like that exact same painting as the larger matte painting behind them it, it's it's just really wonderful kind of off-putting and sometimes it feels random almost because uh, you do kind of think that as an experimental filmmaker maybe he's just indulging himself but it really actually helps create this mystical otherworldly fun childlike environment uh you know things certainly go a, a little crazier later but just all those scenes the way they're edited all of kung fu's action things with the overlapping images and the quick cuts and like you said that 70s action theme music is just awesome i, I can't think of a better way to put it. it just puts a huge smile on my face every time i've seen this movie the, the funny thing with the matte paintings is it's gorgeous when you first see it like there's that great scene where gorgeous comes home and she meets her dad and they're out on the balcony it's this like kind of perpetual setting sun oh yeah painting and then ryoko the i guess soon to be new mom comes in and just the whole look of that sequence is wonderful and as you pointed out there's like those lush uh, matte paintings but the bus stop one i found both beautiful and comical because you could see there's that wide shot of the bus stopping and it's supposed to be like the countryside and there's this gorgeous matte painting of the blue skies and i guess rolling hills and then as the bus pulls away you see on the grass level there's a smaller matte painting that's supposed to be of the sky yeah and then uh, the next scene is a close-up of the girls at that bus stop and you could clearly see that they had set that matte painting up for the next scene and i don't think it should have been in that shot or maybe it was intentional but it, it was one of those things was like was that a editing error that they just bothered to skip because it looks weird from the wide shot when you've got the bus move away and then there's this little weird patch of blue sky that's perfectly situated amongst the grass but then the next scene is like oh okay i understand why it was there but should it have been in that shot like there's a lot of things that in this film that occur where it could be error because it's so experimental or it could have just been intentional to to add up to the humor my my guess is that it's intentional but you know it's because i love the movie so much that i i'm gonna assume that he meant to do it that way but i, I think it's just adding to those layers of I, I hate to use the word meta i mean that that's a little bit too overused but this film is very aware of itself right i mean one of the characters does look at the at the camera a couple of times uh anti so i I think it is very aware of itself and it's aware of its kind of false backgrounds and, and magical landscapes that it created. So I think 
that's kind of intentional to really point out the yeah see this uh, matte painting yeah now see it again in a in a kind of a different context um again that whole scene too and what it leads to is one of my favorite parts of the movie when they're going over that little suspension bridge as they're walking to the house and then suddenly you get those irises on all seven of the girls with their little character introductions and somebody calls out their name and Mac is eating that mammoth huge piece of bread or whatever. (laughs) And it's just so kind of ridiculous because it's like, wait, we're deep into the movie here and now you're doing these Iris character introductions when we've already met them. But it's, again, it's just kind of wonderful and innocent i mean uh, that's kind of a word that you used before it's uh it's charming in so many ways too yeah that that iris part i found funny because you're almost a good half hour or close to a half hour into the film and i remember when i first watched it the the open time where you meet the other girls i found kind of chaotic because outside of mac and i think melody holds a guitar the right. the camera jumps through all of them so quickly that you don't really get too much of so i thought the iris was a, a good use even though like you said you're already by that point you've kind of got a good gauge of it but it's like okay so they're resetting to let you remind you of who these people are because they haven't really delved that deep into it like up to that point you've you've really just followed gorgeous and her whole backstory because clearly that's going to be the most important aspect of the film and you know i think it was a a nice reminder just of like who who fantasy is and whatnot because she's one of those characters that i think gets underutilized but is also very important to the film because she's one of the people that when they get to the house the first one that really see some crazy stuff going on and is disturbed by it. and by the end of the film she's essentially like the the last sane one standing and i found it interesting because she's also one who is longing after their teacher mr togo yep and it fits nicely with the the weird sense of longing and how dangerous it is for women to hold on to their desires and fantasy for men because fantasy herself keeps hoping that mr togo will show up and and sweep her away right and then he'll show up and save them you have auntie who's essentially became cursed because she was longing for a man who promised to marry her but got drafted and died at war and gorgeous is longing for i guess to be reunited with her mom because it's been eight years since her death and she doesn't want her father remarrying so that weird sense of these women holding on to a particular desire and that leading to them being cursed i found kind of interesting yeah and everybody assumes that fantasy is living in her fantasy world so they they don't believe her and she witnesses i guess a couple of the initial on i guess you could say on-screen deaths or the weird happenings of some of the other girls and that's not really giving any plot away right i mean it's seven girls going to a haunted house guess what there's going to be some attrition but i like the way you've kind of expanded that to the wider i guess you would say even theme of the movie i mean as much as we've talked less about plot and more about the mechanics and the form of this movie it does have some of the, those overarching themes and and it is a bit sad underneath right because there's this woman and her i guess spirit uh her, her physical entity is sort of reign in this house waiting for this man and the only people who've been drawn into the house are unmarried women and she essentially you know feasts off them i guess to continue waiting for her man at some point and that's yeah that's that's a pretty sad view uh, of somebody kind of living that lonely life and uh, with all that longing yeah and this, it's a weird part towards the end too when i guess they're wrapping up everything and they 
they talk about the line that says something like um, these stories of love must continue to be told because I guess that's the way that you keep the the spirit of the, the lovers alive and watching this film you don't really see it as a great love story just because there's so much craziness going on and if anything it's it's more of a somber look at love and, and desire because outside of I guess her um, gorgeous's father there's no one that really finds happiness through through love yeah and, and i guess it also goes to show the sort of male female dynamic i mean at one point where i think fantasy is still longing for mr togo they kind of actually even reassure her and they said no no he's he's coming he's coming because well he's a man after all he can help us so what a what an interesting some of these girls basically kind of saying well we'll just wait for the man to come and save us which of course d- does not happen in this case so uh, we, we can talk about mr togo's fate at some point too which is a rather unexpected one uh, <laughs> as he is on his way there but uh, you know again that that ties into that theme and is you could say it's a commentary on even maybe patriarchal view of japanese society at the time you know i don't want to get too much in into that but i think that's a really interesting thing that really jumped out at me given all the other themes that we we're just talking about one thing i did know touching on that patriarchy aspect is that for the most part the the men the few men that are in this film they're all unreliable um, in various ways so for gorgeous she's disappointed because her father even though it's been eight years goes out and finds himself a new woman to marry doesn't even consult her and just introduces her and says you know this woman's going to be your your mom and we're going to be a family again and mr togo is the source of much discussion from early on in the film the girls are always talking about mr togo and how dreamy he is with his really thick sideburns and his dune buggy and his dune buggy but he is so unreliable for most of the film like he can't even he gets sabotaged by the cat and falls down the stairs and has this kind of comedic pratfall where he ends up stuck in a pot his ending i found kind of ridiculous i mean i guess it fits with the tone of the film but it just shows how unreliable this guy was uh, or, or i mean you know if you just look at it on screen you know again no spoilers really i guess it's somewhat of a spoiler but he essentially turns into a bunch of bananas because he doesn't like watermelons he likes bananas not watermelons let's be very clear about this he was very clear with the watermelon seller that he doesn't like watermelons he likes bananas and then uh, the next time he sees dune buggy there's this massive bunch of bananas in the driver's seat that's mr togo and, but but even that, like, it just, it seems so out of left field, like, that would even be a thing. And it's his interactions with the watermelon seller, who's also kind of creepy in a lecherous kind of way. Well, and he's the guy that also says, you know, points up, says, how? So, like, he he's sort of the voice, I guess, of the, um, you know, if you know anything about the movie House, you've probably heard House in a, in a trailer or something like that. So he's the guy that says it. And he also has the most perfectly spherical watermelons ever. Like, they're they're like large bowling balls or bombs with a fuse on the end of it. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure why. I guess it, it looks closer to a head which then, you know, comes later in the film as well. Yeah, well, as we as we learn in the film, they're not using steroids or growth hormones. They seem to be growing their watermelons with human DNA, and maybe that's what's helping get it so lush and plump. They are lush and plump, that is for sure. And I understand it's all witchcraft and stuff, and maybe it has to do with, with the cat, and we can get into that in a minute, but there's just certain logistics in this film that I couldn't quite figure out, and I know it's best not to dive too deep. <laughs> You're looking for logistics? <laughs> and, and, you know, and I, 
I should laugh is, you know, they're, they're in there, I, I guess, to a certain extent, right? I mean, I, I expect he's trying to get some sort of consistency in that, you know, the watermelon seller, after he showed the girls where the house is, did actually say, oh, it's been a long time since some visitors, whereas Mr. Togo can't see a house, like he can't see it. So it's almost like the watermelon man's part of, you know, you've now entered this area where it's witchcraft and only if you're a young unmarried woman or girl can you see the house. And if you aren't, well, maybe you end up as a tropical fruit. <laughs> so I'm, 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 you know, I, I'm not sure, again, I'm giving a lot of leeway to the movie, but at the same time, just letting it kind of happen to you, it, it just has so many pleasures to it. Yeah, let's get back to the cat for a second because the cat has a, a quite central role in the movie. Yeah, go ahead you if you want to dive in uh, with your thoughts on that. Sure. I, was, I think I re- referred to it earlier on about how there's a long history of Japanese ghost stories. And you can go back to, you know, some early Japanese cinema. I think in the, I guess, late 50s, 60s was sort of one of the prime times of it. You had films like Onibaba, The Amazing Kwaidan, and Kuruneko, which is also glorious black and white film, which if you've seen some of the additional material from Criterion on, on House, there's a few references to Kuruneko that, that tie into House quite nicely in other images, or just really the cat being this kind of spirit entity. So that's kind of neat in that the cat lures, you know, gorgeous to write to her aunt. It, it lures a number of the girls in the different rooms and so forth. It has its little glinty eyes that, you know, make things happen at the right time. Somebody mentions how any cat can open a door, but only a witch cat can close a door. And we see that happen at a particularly bad moment for uh, the girl's suite. But my, my favorite moments with the cat, I think there's there's two of them. One you've already referred to early on. Early in the movie or early in their attendance at the house, they walk in and a chandelier falls down and Kung Fu does a whole kind of karate chop, a set of karate chops and I guess saves Sweet and there's a lizard that gets stabbed by one of the pieces of chandelier and the cat swoops in to grab it. And there's these overlapping images of, of Kung Fu and the cat jumping in the air. And it happens all so fast in a matter of like, I think eight seconds, there's, I don't know, maybe 20 different kind of cuts that kung fu action music and anytime the cat is involved with that the pace just leaps right up and it's really amazing visually particularly when you think this is made 40 ish years ago the special effects would have been all done on film or on video a very different time very hard to do some not just the editing but the effects that they did it's my understanding that it's extremely hard there are layers upon layers of those effects in this movie particularly when the cat is either about to attack or is you know got its green glint the eyes but to kick off a you know a human eating piano or or uh, attacking mattresses or things of that nature so that cat is a uh, huge central part of this movie yeah and i like how they incorporated the cat like the cat just appears in so many different places and no one bats an eye like when the cat shows up on the train and they just pick it up it's like oh hey you're here you know so great to see you and i'm thinking no one questioned how the cat even got on there you know every time the cat appears even when strange things happen and and maybe it's just the the witchcraft of the cat but even before its eyes glint it just shows up things happen but no one questions it and it's funny that it's kung fu because as you mentioned that whole overlay at the the beginning the first time something really crazy happens at the house of the chandelier and it's kung fu who realizes that it's the, the image of the cat that needs to be destroyed to at least hopefully break the the spell of the house but there's so many different images of the cat in the house like almost every scene has either the cat physically there or there's some picture or painting in the background and one of my favorite kung fu moments comes at the end when you know she's having the the physical battle i guess with the manifestation of anti-spirit and she gets essentially decapitated but the lower half of her body (laughs) 
still finds a way to fight on and and try and destroy one of the images and you think well that's gonna stop it but wait there's that other painting of the cat that's spewing blood and you know never has a a simple cat been so vicious <laughs> and maniacal and it's funny because i haven't seen the criterion version in terms of like all the extras and on the disc but in preparing for this episode i did find a video essay that kogonada did i guess he did for the criterion one where he was talking about how the cat and especially the flashes of the eyes is representative of the atomic bomb dropping oh, okay. yeah so in in the essay it's it's called tricker truth and it's essentially talking about how the sequence on the train which one of the sequences i love when the film essentially goes into like a children's book and then from a children's book kind of mimics an old-time film and it gives you the history of anti and the war and the bomb dropping and they're saying that the atomic bomb essentially is signified within the cat so every time there's a, a flash it signifies uh, destruction and you know the cat every time the cat's eyes flash there's always something going on whether it be people getting decapitated or mattresses attacking you what have you and it was interesting because watching this film you think more of the, the craziness that occurs but that idea of the the cat representing the bomb and just this ramifications of the bomb on a whole new generation is, is is an interesting idea and i don't know if the film really does a good job of delving that deep into it but it's definitely more food for thought in this film it was at the end of that little uh kind of uh, old-timey newsreel almost footage in that storybook piece where she's kind of relating to her friends the story of her mom and and her auntie and her you know fiance went off to the war there's one point where they have an old-timer photographer take a, a flash picture and that flash actually becomes the the nuclear mushroom mushroom cloud and that's actually i think after after they've related the story of the war so it's it's kind of oddly time but it does seem to tie in with that statement about after the war, any of those flashes kind of indicate you know, further destruction or, or malfeasance about to happen. So whether it's through the photographer with, I guess, the family picture and then things go wrong after that. And then I guess with the cat after afterwards as well. So that, I think that's a, it's a nice kind of tie in. I guess you could have explored that further. But I think it's just, you know, adding another layer into the, the rather tall sandwich that is house. One thing I don't know if, if that just talks about is the, the various ways people die in this film. And I don't know if you want to touch on that briefly, because it, when it starts with Mac, who gets decapitated, and and then it slowly progresses from you know the mattress attacking you, piano to being devoured by a piano, and it's it's there's an interesting thing. Like I found the more elaborate the deaths got, the more salacious the film got as well. First death of Mac, you know, who is basically her characteristic is that she loves to eat, and she's I guess she's meant to be somewhat chubby. You really only see that in her face though, but you know they they try and play that up. So she is you know wants to devour this watermelon she goes out to the well she's always thinking about food and then she kind of becomes this watermelon and actually the the scene i guess where fantasy discovers her you know it's just a deep decapitated head floating who then comes to gnaw on fantasy's rear end as well which just heightens the silliness of the movie to another level at that point but then you know you go from there and sweet who is really the the i guess not just sweetly natured but is the some more demure kind of, uh, I like to clean and I like to look prim and proper and who is a little bit more squeamish of things. You know, she first gets attacked by pillows and feathers and mattresses. As I guess she's looking for, for cleaning items, but then she shows up and, and that's where you get more of that sort of salacious kind of, not salacious, but a little bit more of the bloody stuff where she shows up in all the gears of the clock and then it just turns into blood. It, it, it becomes 
a little bit more, not gory, because the blood in this movie isn't thick. It's like water. It, it is, again, more of a child's sort of view of blood. And it's, you know, sometimes it's spraying out of the wall in huge quantities. Uh, but it looks like, you know, kind of red Kool-Aid to a certain extent. But when you see her, like, in the, in the, the clock's gears... When you see Melody in her many various different parts being chewed up by the piano, it, it it becomes a little bit more, okay, this is still silly, still goofy. Melody, you would think, would always be screaming during that attack. Doesn't seem to mind the fact that her fingers aren't there anymore. It's it's this weird kind of off-putting feeling where this isn't just a silly kind of movie, but it's it's still silly, but it's kind of horrific, too. Yeah, there's, there's a weird, well, I guess at one point there is a little literal kaleidoscope of, of horrors, but the Melody death, I found the most interesting because she loses her fingers and she's kind of smiling like it doesn't really set in until she loses a hand and then it really sets in then it becomes real for her oh now my hand's gone okay oh then she's screaming what have you but then her body gets consumed by the piano in various ways that she becomes part of it and there's a line there's a moment where they take a shot of like i guess from her feet because it's sticking out of the piano and she says something like naughty naughty or oh yeah her head kind of looks at her rear end and feet sticking out saying oh that's naughty yeah and it, it goes from i don't want to use the term gruesome because it's not it's not really a gory film but in this that type of circumstance a gruesome moment to this kind of campy humor then back to the body going and in different directions and I could think of something compared to like Prof who to me if she didn't have glasses she would be non-existent in this film pretty much because she's they keep saying about how she's the the smartest one but I'm thinking Kung Fu is the one that solves everything like she's Prof doesn't really do much but when Prof gets sucked into the the pool of blood it's less horrific and it's just more like look at her body look at her body in different ways and oh the madness is going on but look at her like it was just there was weird aspects to it it's like okay this is clearly not a child it's almost like we dare you to look but you shouldn't be looking point there there are actually little bits of nudity in the movie which i had totally forgotten about gorgeous in the bathtub very briefly and i think prof when she is in the water you know from underneath at first it feels like she's doing this little synchronized swimming kind of routine but you do see the full scope of of her body and, and all its curves and all that and i think there's even another scene towards the end where there's there's parts of and i forget whose body it is and you do see like a, a full torso naked torso so there's a few moments where i guess salacious is probably a good choice of words as to where some of these things do kind of go and, and it doesn't you know go too deep in that but it does it does certainly touch on that wondering if it had to do with the fact that essentially they're well, they're young women yeah yeah they're young women they're all unmarried and we're led to believe virgins that it's it, it kind of that type of sacrifice because horror films from America, the people who are promiscuous that get the most gruesome death. Being a virgin can save your life, whereas here it was like the ultimate sacrifice. It, it is it is kind of the reverse of that. That's true. Yeah, the, the slashers are, and I assume that house pulled a little bit from that, and that was actually one of the reasons why the studio wanted to make this film. By the way, it was um, Obayashi's first feature film. He was a experimental filmmaker and commercial director before that. They were kind of looking at some of those mid-70s horror films, Jaws and some of the other ones, and saying, hey, we need something like this too. So we kind of, I guess, took that and spun it the other way and said, well, actually, I'm going to torture these women in, in a different way from a different point of view. And if you're virgins, well, now you're in trouble. It's a different take on that and the uh, sort of blossoming of womanhood. I, again, you know, we're, we're kind of adding some of these layers on that 
don't go overly in-depth in the movie, but are definitely there. And again, that's just another reason to be fascinated by this film, because he's got so much in there, and yet the the fun and the form is still the thing that grabs you every time. Uh, you know, this this may have come in from come from a young girl's dreams, but it, it's kind of like she ingested a lot of magic mushrooms while having looked at a lot of Dali-esque paintings and watched a lot of children's TV before going to bed and having these nightmares. Like, there's <laughs> so much wrapped up into this. One thing I, I will say that I absolutely love, and this is going back to your point about the, the visual effects, because there's a lot of them in this film. And one of my favorite moments is when Gorgeous is looking at, in the mirror and seeing her mother's reflection. And then the the mirror breaks and blood starts, I guess, pouring through the crack. I thought that was really well done and really effective. It probably didn't you know cost them that much to do, but it was such an interesting image. And a good portion of this film, I was kind of thinking, how did they do that? How did they pull this off? Like with whatever budget they had, they do a good job with the effects, even even though the film is very much a, a campy kind of film. Yeah, you can you can sometimes see you know obvious green screen effects where whether intentional or not, you can still see some of the outlines uh, of the people and you go like, oh okay, that's a bad green screen. But again, it may be partially intentional or calling attention to itself. But some of the effects are like you said, really really well done. The one you just mentioned after the the mirror cracks and the blood comes out, I think it cuts over to gorgeous face which then slowly falls away in these little kind of almost pieces of glass showing that her whole face is on fire and then there's that side cut to her sitting there and the within the outline of her body it's all flames and in the mirrors that the entire mirror looks like it's on fire it's really effective and again really kind of eerie that doesn't necessarily come out of nowhere but it's one of those like whoa that's actually a little bit darker than i would have expected from what i'd already seen in this movie the only other thing i want to bring up and it's just a, a brief thing that i love but the character of ryoko and the fact that her scarf has never met a win it didn't like <laughs> I, I meant to mention that one too i love that <laughs> when she's introduced, she, she almost kind of glides onto the balcony like an angel. And there's when, when she's driving, there's wind. When she's standing, there's wind. Even at the end, when she's sitting inside of the house on the floor and the other person with her is, you know, very still, she's still, there's wind. Her hair are blowing in the wind. You're like, you're inside the house. How are you doing that? Love that little aspect. That adds, again, to her, her character and that she's, I guess, this vision, I guess, from her father's point of view of, you know, the perfect woman who also wants to try and be a good mom to gorgeous and that's why she's gone to you know try and connect with her uh it's just a wonderful almost kind of silly touch that actually adds adds to uh to things as well um i was gonna say too when we were talking about the precursor films to this like kuroneko and onibaba and stuff like that there's there's also the films that came after like the ring pulse and i think juan again the use of you know uh, at least the sounds of a cat in juan the creeping hair that that comes in juan in a number of places there's a scene uh here where gorgeous in the tub and you know there's some hair kind of moving by itself on her shoulder i think there's there's been a lot of influence that has come from this movie to some of the modern japanese horror movies as well i mean they're really much more serious in tone you know you don't get much more serious in tone than pulse which is still one of my favorite films but i think they they've taken a lot of the imagery and ideas that this almost scattershot film has kind of thrown on the screen and, you know, that alone is, is such a great reason to watch this. But there are so, so many more. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. And it's it's funny because I think Pulse is, like you, that's my favorite of them. We're talking about the original versions, not the oh, American. Yes, please. And Pulse is one that generally creeped me out. Pulse kind of sticks with you, you know, and I could easily see that film being transplanted here. 
you know, if you were to add just a little kind of goofy humor to it. And thinking back to the other ones, yeah, that's that's a very good point. The other scene that I really loved that we didn't touch on was, was at the end of Kung Fu's role, I guess, when she is being pulled up by that big chandelier. It, it does go into this real kind of surreal thing where her almost disembodied head is kind of surrounded by different animated type of things and spinning colors that, again, is just amazing and wonderful imagery that is both off-putting and childlike it, together all at once, which is kind of why I sort of mentioned Dolly before. Not not that all this stuff, of course, is, is childlike, but there's this just weird disconnect from reality that is disturbing and kind of fantastic at the same time. That That's sort of this movie in a nutshell, I guess. It's a great ending off point. Yeah, it, it's a wild film, but I'm, I'm glad I finally caught up with it and be revisiting numerous times just to dive in like i'll definitely pick up the the criterion disc that's good that's good to hear i i mean you know if somebody doesn't like the film that that's fine i i love it though so i'm always happy to hear somebody who also sort of sees that as just an amazing film experience uh bob thank you for coming back on the show where can listeners find you i guess on twitter at the logical mind would be the best place excellent and listeners you can reach me on twitter at small mind or you can reach the show at changing reels ac and remember you can change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time.